0: Hello, everybody. My name is Ansaf Rashid, and you're listening to Unequivocally Speaking, a podcast with interviews, self help guides, random rants, among many other things. Here, you'll find a way to enjoy your free time and hopefully learn a thing or two on the way. This is the second episode on the Unequivocally Speaking podcast, and today I am going to talk to you about risk analysis in decision making in the context of of the coronavirus. Risk is a seemingly simple word but it has many different meanings. Different perspectives on risk can lead us to different actions so it's important for us to know how we make meaning of risk and how different people decide on different meanings. Today I'm going to talk to you about why this matters to us both as individuals and as a society. I've been in public meetings and have listened to people who were fearful and anxious about environmental risks that they felt posed a threat to their health and well-being and those of their families. I started to realize that while we did a good job on the objective analysis on the risk assessment part of things, we didn't do a very good job in understanding different perspectives or perceptions on risk. And we were certainly doing a horrible job at communicating about risk. As a result, it is very hard for us to make appropriate and meaningful and effective risk management decisions. I came through all of this to understand that risk is a word that we use cavalierly, but really means different things to different people at different times and in different contexts. Well, maybe we should start at how we actually assess risk. A technical assessment of risk involves 3 simple components. The first is the hazard, the what can go wrong. The second is the probability, how likely is it to go wrong. And then finally we have the consequences, what happens if it goes wrong. This might be more understandable if we put it in the context of a risk that we're all currently facing right now, the coronavirus. In this case, the risk is the coronavirus itself. Probabilities are a bit more complicated because we're worried not only on how likely we are to be exposed to the coronavirus and thereby acquire COVID-19, the disease that results from it, but we're also concerned about how likely we are to have the most severe symptoms associated with coronavirus as opposed to very mild or asymptomatic occurrences of it. And of course, the consequences of the disease are these symptoms themselves. So that's the technical assessment of risk. But there are other ways that we think of risk. There is the more familiar or colloquial way we talk about risk, where it's something hazardous or dangerous or perilous or threatening. But we also think of risk as an opportunity. Think about when you bought your last lottery ticket you were perfectly willing to risk that $2 for the chance to get millions. There are also other types of good risks in our lives. Uh, for example, the decisions that we make when we have an important test in the coming week. We could start preparing for it now or some of us might take the risk and procrastinate a little or even just wing the whole thing. The third category of risk is the insurance category of risk. Now the insurance industry has a very narrow view of what risk is. To them risk is only chance or uncertainty. They are not really concerned about the consequences of your house burning down, they are just concerned about how likely that is to happen and that, they, and that they would therefore have to pay out your insurance benefits as a result. Perhaps the best way of understanding why these different meanings of risk and different perspectives of risk matters is through an example. There is a joke in the insurance industry that concerned two skydivers. The joke was, if you had one parachutist leave a plane with a parachute on and the other one leave without a parachute, who's more at risk? Well, the answer might seem obvious to you but from an insurance industry perspective, it's actually the skydiver with the parachute on who's more at risk. There's much more uncertainty about what's going to happen to the skydiver, whether their parachute will open properly, whether they land safely, whereas there is almost no uncertainty associated with the fate of the skydiver without the parachute. However, for us, I think we would all feel far more at risk if we were the person without the parachute, as the hazards and the consequences to us personally would be much more dire. Now, this is a very black and white example, but I think it goes to illustrate why, how we define risk and our perspectives on the risk and what that risk means to us are very important in how we make decisions around risk. In the field of psychology, there is a very well-known and revered scholar named Dr. Paul Slovic. He's made great contributions to understanding about why the definition of risk matters in one of his papers. In this, he said that whoever controls the definition of risk controls the rational solution to the problem at hand. If we are using a very analytical, political way of looking at risk, one solution may come to the fore. If we are looking maybe a more emotional or a more people-centered view of risk, another solution comes forward. And because of that, whoever defines risk controls the power. So defining risk is an exercise in power. Paul wrote a subsequent paper that also helped us to understand this, called Risk is Analysis and Risk is Feelings. In this paper, he purports that there are two fundamental ways in which we determine risk in our lives. One is very analytical. It's the math, the logic, the models, the time-consuming processes that we use to produce evidence on risk. The second way that we define risk is through our emotions and our experience. These are the gut feelings we all have about whether something is right or wrong, whether it's risky or or is it safe? It's the feelings that help us decide whether to go into a dark street at night, if it's safe or not, if we take a glass of water that smells funny. Is this something that's safe to drink? We've always thought that the analytical definition of risk is the one that we should control how we manage risk. But Paul actually showed us that there is good evidence to show that we need both of these perspectives on risk to make good decisions. That they have to be integrated in the decisions that we make. Maybe the best way to illustrate this is through more examples related to coronavirus. We've heard a lot in the last number of weeks about the concept of using herd immunity as a way to control the virus. Herd immunity also known as population immunity is a concept used for vaccination in which a population can be protected from a certain virus if a threshold of vaccination is reached. To attain herd immunity, we start with a novel virus like the coronavirus, and people immediately get sick. As those people get well, they presumably have some immunity to the virus, or if we get a vaccine, then we have people get immunity to the virus, but currently we don't have a vaccine for coronavirus, so we're relying on people getting sick. Eventually, we have enough people that have immunity that we're able to protect those people who haven't been exposed and who might be vulnerable and at that point we reach herd immunity and the virus dies out because it has nowhere else to go. Now in a coldly analytical way of looking at risk, it seems to make sense that we would use herd immunity as a way to control the virus. It would mean no restrictions, it would mean no shutdowns and it would also mean that the economy could continue as usual. But let's look at the math and what herd immunity would entail. If we were to take the example of a first world country such as Canada and using a conservative estimate about the percentage of population that would be needed to be infected to get herd immunity, it would require about 870,000 people to die for us to achieve herd immunity. And this is even more scary If you look at those numbers for other first world countries such as the United States, where over 7.5 million people would have to die before herd immunity could be achieved. So this is one case where the corely analytical option is just unacceptable to us because our emotional reaction to risk our sense of values, our sense of what is right and what is wrong says we cannot allow that many people to die to achieve herd immunity. And to get control of this virus and there has to be a better way of doing it. Another example where analysis and emotions need to be thought of in context is this COVID fatigue that everyone's suffering right now. Now it's a perfectly natural reaction to rebel against having to unnaturally stay at home and isolate ourselves. And I know many people long to get back to a more normal way of life. However, our analytical analysis of risk shows us that that is not going to help us achieve any kind of control over this virus than in addition to the risk that we are taking ourselves by cutting away from our perfectly good lives out there. We are also going to pose a risk to others if we aren't isolating or if we aren't wearing masks or if we aren't doing anything to prevent the transmission of the disease. So this is a case where clearly the analysis has to trump the emotional part of our decision-making. A final example is illustrated here. Now, analytically, we know that young people are far less likely to become severely ill with the virus and die, although that's not absolute. However, we also know that those young people then become vectors of the disease to other people who may be more medically vulnerable older people, those with underlying conditions. So while analytically it's correct to say I'm young, I can get immune, nothing bad is going to happen to me, the emotional side of our risk analysis tells us that it's unacceptable to take that selfish decision and that we need to be protecting ourselves and preventing the transmission for the greater good. So hopefully this illustrates why we need to look different perspectives of risk and try to understand those perspectives of risk. I think what it boils down to is that we need to answer two questions. What do we want to achieve and what do we value? This integrates the emotional and the analytical components of how we assess risk. It is something we need to ask ourselves individually And it's a conversation we need to have as a society. I think we need to do this by talking to each other. I think communication, dialogue, meaningful conversations are going to be our most powerful tool in addressing the risks that we take on as a society. However, we have to remember that these conversations cannot be one-sided. That it's as important for us to listen to other people as it is to do all the talking. And maybe the most important tool we have is to try to put ourselves in other people's shoes and to understand why they see things from their perspective. We may not agree with that, but at least if we can understand it better, it gives us the basis for starting these difficult conversations. Personally, my decisions on risk are both emotional and analytical and very conscientiously made. I'd like to end this episode with these two questions and a challenge. To maybe think about these two questions the next time you present it with a personal risk or even a wider risk that like the coronavirus we're all dealing with and ask yourself, what do we want to achieve and what is it we value? And then I further challenge you to try and have this conversation with other people and make it truly a societal conversation where we can come together on trying to do the things we want to achieve, but to make sure that they are guided by our sense of what is right and what is wrong. That's it for today's episode. I hope you guys liked it. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. And you can follow me on my Instagram. It's Ansaf Rashid. And it's the same on Twitter and Facebook. I'll see you guys in the next week. And again, make sure to subscribe.